The book of Revelation can be an incredibly confusing and even frightening read, but it wasn't meant to be either. In fact, behind the violent and alarming imagery of Revelation lies a world of beauty as we see the self-sacrificial love of Christ forever triumph over the darkness we encounter all too often in our world. Join us as we take a deeper look at what the disciple John wrote and why. Dispel common misconceptions of what it all means and celebrate the glorious future it promises in our series, Rescuing Revelation. Good morning, Woodland Hills. You look marvelous this morning. You look marvelous. Do you like my shirt? My daughter got me this. Uh, it's just expressing the truth that drummers are the high, most evolved beings on the planet. In case you were wondering, we're also the most modest. So, can you see the the pinnacle of creation? Okay. Speaking of drumming, though, you're all invited to a party uh, this Friday at O'Gara's, my world famous band NDY. Yes, we're so groovy, aren't we? We're very groovy. Uh, not dead yet, because uh, we're not dead yet. But we do not dress like that. I'd rather be dead, actually. Than... Well, this Friday at O'Gara's, that's right off of Snelling uh, Avenue, uh, we'll be having a party. We're all, you're all invited. It's a, a benefit for Haiti. All the proceeds go to Children in Haiti. We run a ministry down there. And uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. And so I encourage you to come and go, go, go from 830 uh, to 12 or 1230, depending on the crowd. If you want more, you'll get more. Uh, and it's, uh, uh, it's at a bar, so they have drinks. I know some of you are wondering about that. <laughs> but... Uh, uh, it's, uh, because we're renting it, it's, it's, uh, uh, open to all ages. So you don't have to be 21. And, uh, in case you're wondering, we play rock and roll, but when we need to, we clean up the lyrics. And so, like, we're doing a pink song, uh, get the party started. And at one point she says, uh, I'll be burning rubber, you'll be kissing my, and then she puts in her word. Uh, well, we put in a word that rhymes with it. Uh, we say, we'll be burning rubber, we'll be going so fast. So, uh, it's, you know, we, so don't worry, it won't be too offensive. Uh, so come and have a good time. Uh, the, the first set, uh, which will go from about 8.30 to 10 or so, uh, we'll do our normal kind of oldie stuff, uh, Doobie Brothers, Journey, and that kind of thing. And then uh, the second set, we've taken six months off, actually, just to learn all these new songs, the contemporary songs. So we'll be doing Neon Trees and, and, uh, and Prince and Counting Crows and Black Eyed Peas. I got a feeling that... And, and some pink stuff, uh, you know, she's got some good stuff and... Uh, Prince, Red Hot Chili Peppers, you name it, we, we bring it. So come on and be a part of that. It's, it's a lot of fun. Uh, and you can dance if you want to dance. You can sit and listen if you want to listen. But I'd rather you get out there and dance. It's going to be a blast. So be a part of that. Uh, and the t- $10 suggested donation, you can give more than that because it's to a good cause. But if you don't have the $10, you can still come. Uh, it's not an entry price. It's just a suggested donation. All right. Well, we are in the fifth week on this series, Rescuing Revelation. Though so far, I've tried to just show uh, uh, Revelation is written in a way that we ought to appreciate its genre. It's not to be taken literally. It uses all sorts of symbolism. And when you understand it like that, it paints a beautiful portrait of the warfare that we're in now and a glorious uh, end. And uh, what looks like it's violent is actually anti-violence. Uh, now I want to, in this message, uh, move on and talk about some major passages that others have based some of their end-time thinking on. And I want to be exploring these. Uh, we're entitling this, this, The End of the World as You Know It. It's the end of the world as you know it. I feel fine. And the, the reasons for that will become clear, hopefully, in a little bit. And then next week we'll have uh, this Q&A time. And so I encourage you to come and, and uh, raise your best questions. So I'll first look at, at, at some uh, 
Two major passages that are, are used to support the rapture doctrine. And by the way, as I go through this, I know this has been a challenging series in some ways, because I'm giving a perspective that most folks in evangelical circles have not heard before. Uh, I appreciate you hanging in there. You don't have to agree with me. Uh, one person last week came up and said, I appreciate that this is a church where even if you don't agree, at least it makes you think. And, and we want people to be thoughtful about these things. You may end up agreeing, you may not, but uh, um, hear me out on this stuff. So I'll first look at the verses that used to support this rapture doctrine that Christians are going to be suctioned up into the air at the end of history. And then I want to turn to a passage in the Gospels. Uh, I'll be looking at Mark 13. It's got parallels in Matthew and Luke that uh, uh, people base their science theology on. All that stuff about signs and wonders and those kind of things comes out of those passages. And we're going to be asking the question, do they really support the view that people are using them for? So first, let's pray. Father, I thank you for uh, everybody in this auditorium, uh, that you love them from the moment they became an idea, and uh, that you've been with them every step of their way, and now it's brought them to this place. I thank you for all of our podrishners, same thing about them. I pray, God, that you just use this message to uh, expand us, to grow us, to orientate us in the direction you'd have us to be oriented. Uh, I pray, God, this would be a message that liberates folks who need to be liberated, frees people who need to be freed. Um, it corrects people who need to be corrected. And whatever is true, I pray you just highlight it by the power of your spirit. Whatever is not, just let it fall flat on the ground. We submit it to you, and ask you come, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Talked to a guy after the last service who was just on the verge of tears, just saying about how his, his view of the end of the world has just been revolutionized in this series, and it's made such a difference in his life now. Like He, he realized that he would, was a real judger of others, and had almost a cocky attitude because he, he thought he knew, you know, the secret of how things are going to unwind. And um, uh, it, it just created a wrong attitude, his view of Jesus. It was con- determined a lot by the literal reading of Revelation. And, and, and so it's just really, how you think about the future, how you think about God, it, it affects everything. And so this material can be very liberating. So the idea of the rapture, its, it's primary verse is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Uh, we read this. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are alive will, uh, and are left, well, and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be forever with him. Be with the Lord forever. Seems like straightforward enough. He comes, we go up in the air, and then we go off. This is where people get this idea that heaven is somewhere out there, not on here. Even though every other verse that deals with heaven talks about a perfected and transformed earth, this one, it seems like it's saying, on surface, the Lord's going to come back, catch us up, and go away someplace. And then folks go through the tribulation period. Another passage that is used to support this, this belief, it's the other major passage, is uh, found in Luke 17, and it also has parallels in Matthew and Mark. Jesus says, I tell you, on that night, two people will be in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other left. And so in the rapture thinking, uh, it's the one taken is the one who is raptured. In a moment, boom, they're gone. And the other person's left behind and gets massacred in the, in, in the tribulation period. If you're taking Revelation, literally, it's a very, very bloody book. You know, they're coming out with a new movie, I'm told, on, on Revelation, starring Nicolas Cage. Uh, or, uh, it's called Left Behind. It's the Left Behind series. And I'm not sure I would clap if I were you. 
Um, but it's going to be based on a literal reading of Revelation, and they're going to have to rate that thing R, because if you read that book literally, I mean, you got a bloodbath from that wine press with people being crushed that goes on for 180 miles, five feet deep. Uh, that's going to be a gruesome movie. So that, that was, uh, in this view, you, you escape that by being suctioned into the air. You know, I was shocked when I first learned that this was a recent teaching in church history. The first church I was saved in when I was 17, this was a central doctrine. I assumed everyone always thought this way. It never occurred to me that not everyone believed this. But I learned that it wasn't until the early 19th century that this idea was birthed. Now, just because a view is new does not mean that it's not true. People are, can still discover things that weren't seen before, or God can reveal things that weren't revealed before. And so it doesn't mean it's not true. On the other hand, if you come up with a new idea that no one in church history has ever seen before, you better have very good reasons for believing it. You've got to make a really solid case for it. And you ought to humbly submit it to others to critically scrutinize uh, so that the community of believers can discern this w- with you. And it may be true, but maybe it will turn out to be a bunch of bunk. I want us to critically scrutinize this, this belief. Uh, is, do we have good reasons for believing that this is true? The first thing I want to say is this. If you've ever studied a foreign language, you'll know that one of the hardest things to get are the idioms, the, the, those phrases that are not meant to be taken literally. Um, you don't notice them in your own language because, of course, you use it all the time. You don't even think about it. But when you're studying a foreign language, it can seem so odd. Why would they say things like that? I didn't know how packed English was of these sorts of non-literal phrases until I raised an autistic son. And, um, and he takes everything very, very literally. And there would be times where he would get mad because of the way I talk. I, I would say it was pouring out, outside one day, and I said, man, it's raining cats and dogs out there. And he ran into the window and looked out there. And he says, you're playing a trick on me. There's no cats or dogs out there, and they don't fall from the sky anyways. It's like, no, that's an expression. Why would you say cats and dogs? I have no idea. That's just how we do it. You know? <laughs> or one time you wanted me to do something, and I said, oh, Nathan, I can't. I'm really under the gun. He says, you don't even like guns. You don't even own a gun. You can't be under a gun. Or one time I, I said to Shelly, I was feeling a little bit under the weather. And he was like, how do you get under the weather? There's, there's, nothing, there's no place to go under. He's got a point. I don't know how these things originate, but it's just the way you talk. And... Uh, and so in the Bible, we're dealing not only with a foreign language and a foreign culture, but with an ancient foreign language and an ancient foreign culture. And so we have to expect that some of the ways they talk are going to be very odd to us. It's our job to get into their way of thinking and their way of speaking, rather than trying to get them to conform to us. I am convinced that most of the confusion, and I think misunderstandings that happen with regard to what the Bible says about the future, happen because... We take things literally that they meant figuratively. It's important to always assess, is this meant literally or is this meant figuratively? When we look at 1 Thessalonians 4, the passage we read, here's the thing. The trumpet was always used to announce the coming of the king. Uh, and so it was meant to, to announce the, the coming of God's presence in one form or another. It would meant redemption to those who want this presence, and it meant judgment for those who didn't want his presence. And so we find uh, that the trumpet comes to symbolize this. Throughout the book of Revelation, it symbolizes this. Coming into his presence, which is good news for those who are submitted and very bad news to those uh, who, who are not. And so Paul says that Jesus will descend with a trumpet. It's just a way of announcing that, that the Lord's presence is now coming to earth. To redeem all who can be redeemed, but it will be judging all those who don't want anything to do with him. And then he says he's riding on the clouds. He'll come descending, riding on the clouds. Now that phrase, riding on the clouds, we find all over the place. 
All throughout the Old Testament, you find Yahweh, or the Son of Man, rides on the clouds. But if you look at the context, none of them are meant literally. Uh, for example, we find this in, in, in Psalms 18. Uh, he's talking about how he was redeemed, uh, how the Lord saved him from his enemies. He said, he parted the heavens and came down. Dark clouds were under his feet. He mounted the cherub, cher, cherubim and flew. He soared on the wings of the wind. He made darknesses covering his canopy around him. The dark rain clouds of the sky surrounded him. And that's repeated again in 2 Samuel 22. Now, I don't think anybody would have, at the time, would have thought that the psalmist was saying that he actually saw these things. In fact, if you think about it, it'd be pretty hard to see how anyone could have saw, seen these things because it makes no sense if you take it literally. On the one hand, he's standing on the clouds, but on the other hand, the, the clouds are a canopy around him. And then he says he mounted the cherubim and flew, but then he says he soared on the wings of the wind. Well, which is it? it was it the cherubim or was it the, the, the wings of the wind? And by the way, what do the wings of the wind actually look like? <laughs> I've never seen them. It makes no sense literally, but it wasn't meant literally. Uh, this is just a way of saying that God shows up in glory and power uh, to redeem his redeemed and to judge uh, those who are, who are set against him. And I can show you example of example of how uh, whenever judgments were announced, it was used with the language of coming in the clouds. And so every other instance, it's, it's found to be figurative. And so there's no reason to think that Paul would be thinking this literally in First Thessalonians. That we're going to see a tiny Jesus on top of all these clouds, or maybe be a giant Jesus riding on clouds. But why clouds? You know, it, it, he didn't mean it literally. It's a way of saying he's coming in glory and power to redeem and to judge. And then Paul says we'll be caught up uh, in, in the clouds. Now this phrase caught up is where we get the word rapture from. That's where the, the way some people get the word rapture from. But actually, the word rapture is not a biblical word. I don't think it's even a biblical concept. Uh, the word here caught up, harpazo, uh, it, it, it means to see, seize or be seized, or to uh, claim or be claimed as someone's. It's a way of earnestly claiming something as your own. Mine. And so what Paul is saying here is that when the Lord comes back, he's going to claim us as his own. We will be seized by him. We belong to him. The word does not mean and cannot mean fly away. It just doesn't mean that. And then he says we'll meet him in the air. But in a first century context, in their cosmology, the air was an oxygen we breathe. The air was a domain of authority around the earth. That's why Paul says that Satan is the ruler of the kingdom of the air. And he's the spirit that's now at work in those who are disobedient. It's because he's got that authority over the earth. This earth is right now seriously oppressed by the evil one. That's why there's so much evil. And it's just a, a dark place. We are stationed behind enemy lines. We're in his territory. He's not referring to oxygen here. He's referring to a domain of authority. And so what Paul is saying in 1 Thessalonians, I think if we understand the, the way they speak back then, he's saying that when the Lord returns, it will be in power and glory. His presence will be here on earth. Uh, and he will reclaim the authority over this earth. And he will claim as his own uh, his, his people, both the living and the dead. And he will share that authority with us. And so we shall forever be with him here on earth. Which is what every other passage about the ultimate state of the future says. We'll reign with him on earth. His will be done now on earth as it is in heaven. But I don't think anyone would have thought that he would have thought this is something we're literally supposed to see. Many times in the Old Testament, they'll say, look, look, the Lord's riding on the clouds. But it would have been like my son Nathan to say, well, wait, I don't see the Lord riding on any clouds there. No, you're not getting the speech. We're saying God's coming in his power and glory. It, it, it's meant figuratively. What about the passage that says one will be taken and one left behind? What could be clearer than that, right? And that surely is referring to something. 
Well, it's referring to something, but I don't think it's referring to a rapture, folks. It's always important to read things in context. Whenever you hear a quote, never trust it, unless you really trust the person. Uh, check it out. What comes before it? What comes after it? Because that's the only way to know what the passage is really talking about. So let's read it again, but this time put it in a little bit of context. Jesus says, I tell you, on that night, two, will be, two people will be in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. Two, men, two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other left. Seems clear enough. But read the very next verse. Where, Lord? Where are they taken? The disciples asked. To heaven? Nope. Where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. What's up with that? The one taken is not the lucky one. The one taken is somebody who got seized by an enemy and was killed. What Jesus is referring to here, and we'll say more about this a little bit later, but he's referring to the attack of Rome on Jerusalem. Uh, the Israelites have been causing problems with Rome for a long time, and there's all these zealots who are, who are killing off Roman soldiers and these insurrection movements, and, and uh, the, the, the Jews weren't conform, conforming to Roman ways. And so in 66 A.D., uh, Rome s- surrounded Jerusalem, and they would. Uh, and this is how they this is how they dealt with with people who were uh, guilty of insurrection. Uh, they would raid the city and randomly gather people, just collect people, go in and grab one person in the field, break into a house, grab one out of bed, you know, just gra- randomly grab people, take them out on a hill and crucify them. And it was a way of publicly saying, "You want to screw on with us? Well, this is what happens to your loved ones." This is how Rome kept the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. It was through terrorism. They terrorized people into submission. This is what happens if you screw with us. And then what they would do is when, when the people had died, they'd bury them in a mass grave somewhere. They, they, they didn't get the honor of having a, a personal burial, which was to, to Jews just so dishonoring. It was, it was, you know, just blasphemous. And, and so they'd want to find the bodies of their loved ones to give them a proper burial. And the only way to know where these mass graves were was to look for vultures. Because the vultures would always circle around. Where there's a bunch of dead bodies down there. We have records one time of, of them crucifying 4,000 people at one time. This is how there's Rome flexing the muscle. Random people, doesn't matter if they're guilty or whatever, you round them up and you kill them because you want to back off this insurrection. And so these vultures are circling for a free meal and uh, 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 folks would have to look for those to try to find, go, go to the, these bodies before they're buried and try to find their loved ones. So Jesus is saying... That he's talking about a disaster coming, and the one being taken is not the not the lucky one. No, that's the person who was grabbed, was killed, and now their body's dead. Just look for the vultures. You probably have the same essence of the teaching in the, the version in Matthew. Here's what he says. Uh, for in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. In other words, they're going about life as usual, like you do. Um, until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. They were taken. This is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill, one will be taken and the other left. The ones who are taken are not the lucky ones. They're like the ones who in the flood were taken by the flood. They didn't listen to the preaching of Noah until it was too late, and they were taken. So also at the coming of the Son of Man, one will be taken and the other left. They're the unfortunate ones. And what we'll see here in a moment, I'm going to try to show here in a moment, is that this coming of the Son of Man isn't talking about the end of history. This is a phrase, it comes out of Daniel 7, uh, that the Son of Man coming on the clouds is a sign of judgment. This was a judgment that was coming on Israel uh, because they had abandoned their God. And so 
the two, two main passages that are used to support this literal rapture do- doctrine uh, just turn out to be rather weak. I think my own opinion, my own humble opinion, this whole concept is based on a uh, misreading of the text. It's, you're, it's, it's an o- overly literal reading, and they're taking verses out of context. Read it in its normal cultural context and its literary context, and you understand the symbolism of it. It's talking about a destruction uh, of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. All right, let's turn to the, the teaching in Matthew, or in, in Mark 13. The sign, sign of the times theology. This is where Jesus speaks about the signs that the end is near. There'll be wars and rumors of wars. I'm sure many of you have heard this sort of thing. Uh, there'll be earthquakes and famines. The sun and the moon will be darkened, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. And uh, if you read this, is about the end of history. Well, then you get a lot of people doing what a lot of people are doing today, where they'll say, ah, see, wars are increasing, and the rumors of wars are increasing, and, and, and earthquakes are increasing, and famines are increasing, so this is surely a sign of the times. And some get involved in rather extravagant reading of the signs of heaven. Uh, I'll talk about that more at the, at the end of this message. But uh, in some ways, they want that to be true because they're believing that this is, this is the, the end. Now, it may be the end, folks, but it's not because of anything we're finding in this passage. FYI, earthquakes are not increasing in frequency. Uh, the, the number, the frequency of uh, earthquakes 7.0 or above, which is all we can measure back for very long, has remained relatively constant for the last 50 years. It ebbs and flows. It goes up and down a little bit. We're right now in a down period, actually. Uh, but it will go back up again. But it always stays within a range. So they're not increasing in frequency. It just seems like it because we hear about more of them because the world is shrunken and we get news from everywhere. And we have a lot more detecting devices that are, that are much better at detecting smaller earthquakes. So, and some of those get reported on. So we're hearing a lot more about earthquakes and all that kind of stuff, but they're actually not increasing in frequency. With wars, same thing. I mean, yeah, there's, there's always somebody getting killed on the globe, unfortunately. At any given moment, some people group is trying to slaughter out some other people group. But folks, sadly, that's been true every moment of human history, uh, without exception. Uh, and actually, the, the amount of people being killed in war, the amount of bloodshed through wars, has decreased significantly. It's still absolutely demonically atrocious, but compared to where it was 60 years ago with World War II, or before that, World War I, or before that, the Civil War, it's, it's, it's a fraction of that. So it's not true that wars are increasing. It is true, however, that famines are increasing. And they're increasing in severity, and that's because of global warming. And that's a serious problem. But what I want us to show, see now, folks, is that that is not a sign of anything. It's not a sign uh, that the end of the world is coming. Maybe tomorrow, it may not, but famines aren't a sign of, of, of anything uh, for us. For the simple reason that Jesus, I'm going to try now to show, wasn't talking about the end of the world in Matthew 13. Jesus is returning. Our groom is going to return for us. But we don't know when or how. We have no information about that, and there are no signs that we're to be looking for. At least that's the case I want to make here. We misread this text if we think it applies to for us to be looking for signs. So, we have to read everything in context. So let's go to the very beginning. Mark 13, verse 1. It says, As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent building, what a magnificent building. Now, the, the temple of Herod was magnificent. It was, it was one of the wonders of the world. It was Huge, ornate. It was incredible. Its foundational stones were 37 feet by 17 feet by 12 feet. Massive. And they put that together without any bulldozers or any kind of machine help whatsoever. I, I, I can't fathom that. It took them 40 years to build this thing, but it was, it was just incredible. But Jesus 
basically says, don't get be so quick with your praise because the time's coming. He says, he gives us this warning. All these great buildings you see, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. It's going to be destroyed. Jesus had just a little while earlier given a prophecy. He did it while he was wailing, riding into Jerusalem. While people are waving their palm branches, he gives this prophecy about a coming judgment on Jerusalem. And he said, how often I wanted to gather you together, but you would not. I want to gather you under my wings like a, like a hen, but, but you would not. And he says, because you've abandoned God and don't know the ways of peace and are now going to abandon his Messiah, uh, God's going to abandon you. And there comes a time where you have this warning all throughout the Old Testament. If you turn your back, there comes a time where God has no choice but to withdraw from you, and that's going to spell disaster for you, and there's going to be bloodshed everywhere. And Jesus is wailing as he gives this prophecy. Here, he's adding to that prophecy. And he's saying part of this judgment will be the destruction of the temple. Now, that would have been horrifying to the disciples. Uh, or to any Jew in the first century, because the temple was the center of everything Judaism was about. They saw the temple as, as God's, God's living space. This was his house. He lived there. And they knew God also was you know, all around the world, but there's a special presence there. And the temple that represented that God, that God is their God and they are his people. It was the center of everything. And the temple is where atonement took place. The temple functioned like the, functioned like the cross does for us. This is where you made animal sacrifices, which they believed atoned for their sins. And so every Passover, Jews from all around the Roman Empire would come and, and make sacrifices there because they could only be made in the temple. This, this was huge. This was the center of absolutely everything. I uh, can't exaggerate how, uh, how huge this event would be, the destruction of the temple, and yet it happened. In 70 AD, the Romans, having tried to squelch this rebellion for four years, and it wasn't working, they came in, they raided Jerusalem full force, they slaughtered everybody, and they destroyed the temple. It took them three years to dismantle the thing, but they tore it all down. Now you might wonder, why would they tear the temple down? Why, why not save it? It's one of the wonders of the world. Use it for an office space or something. For a palace, for crying out loud. But see, they knew how important the temple was to the Jewish people, and they also knew that it was the Jewish faith that was causing all the problems. The reason why the Jews alone, among all the peoples that they conquered, the Jews alone always had to have these exceptions. They'd get offended if you printed the face of a Caesar on a coin, so they had to make special coins for them. And all the, they wouldn't integrate with Rome as because of their Jewish faith. So let's kill the Jewish faith. And by destroying the temple, you're cutting what was the heart of Judaism of the time. Now, it didn't, it didn't end the world, obviously, but it ended the world as the Jews knew it. Judaism was radically transformed uh, as, as a result of that. And actually, it has tremendous theological significance because God didn't cause this event and, and God didn't act violently in this event, this destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. But it was a divine judgment because God had said, if you abandon me, uh, there'll come a point where I'll just have to withdraw without a grieving heart, like Jesus expressed, I have to withdraw, and now you'll suffer the consequences of your rebellion. And this is what happened. It was a divine judgment. It also was the providential time when the church separated from Judaism as a distinct entity. Up to this point, Christians were going to the synagogues and still worshiping in the synagogues. Now they become a separate entity. This forced that, that, that split. Now the Jews were scattered around the world, and, and they no longer had their own state. Um, and so this was a time where, really, it was officially made known that God was no longer going to try to work through a distinct nation uh, based on the law, using violence to protect itself. Now that was being transferred to the church, which is why Paul calls the church the Israel of God in, in Galatians 6. 
And now it would be composed of a people from every tribe and every tongue. It would be based not on the law, but on his empowering grace and his spirit. And it would be characterized by a people who, instead of retaliating or using violence, they love their enemies and follow the example of Jesus in this. So the temple, the destruction of the temple was absolutely huge. To say it was huge is a massive understatement. So Jesus blows their mind by saying the temple will be destroyed. But now we come to the all-important verse. Uh, watch what happens. It says, As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple... Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things happen, and what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? The question is, when will the temple be destroyed? And other signs that will precede it? Because they're, they're asking this, so they're saying, because we got to know when we got to get out of here. Um, and, and so that is the question on the table, and everything Jesus says in Mark 13 is in response to that question. It's not a question of the end of the world. But it is the question of the end of the world as the, the, the Jews knew it, the destruction of the temple. All the signs he mentions there are signs for the disciples uh, that are going to lead up to the destruction of, of, of the temple. There are not signs about the end of the world. You see this very clearly by the way Jesus ends the message. We just looked at the beginning, let's look at the end. After giving all this teaching, he says, Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have been fulfilled. In Matthew's version, Jesus says, I tell you, there's some standing here who will not pass away before, these th- before all these things happen. It's, whatever Jesus is talking about, it happens in their lifetime. And so everything was fulfilled in, in, uh, it, that we read about in Mark 13. It was fulfilled uh, in the years leading up to and including 70 AD with the destruction of, of, of the temple. Obviously, that generation was dead 2,000 years ago, so this can't be applying to us today. Not only that, but if you read Mark 13 carefully, you'll find there's a number of things in that chapter that couldn't possibly apply to us, but that perfectly apply to Jews before 70 AD. So, for example, one of the things Jesus says is going to happen. He says, you must be on your guard because you will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. What happens is the Jewish council was, was the, the leaders of a uh, uh, local Jewish movement uh, would try people. That was where they would try people for heresy, fellow Jews for heresy. And if they were found guilty, they'd be returned to their synagogue and flogged there. And if they repented, they'd be allowed back in the synagogue. If not, they'd be considered anathema and kicked out. Now, Jesus is saying this is what's going to happen to his disciples. He says, you will be flogged and, and, and brought before the council. Um, does anyone think that at the end of time, at the end of world history, we, those of us who are Gentiles, are going to be brought before Jewish leaders and tried for, for heresy and then delivered to synagogues to be whipped? I don't think so, but this is what happens, happened to these first century Christians. And it shows that they were still at the time worshiping in synagogues, which is what we know to be the case. It was only after 70 AD that they, they, they began to split from that. So all the things that Jesus mentions in this chapter, we can, we can correlate from other sources are things that happened in the years leading up to uh, the destruction of the temple. He says there'll be a, a plethora of false messiahs saying, "Go, I'm he, come over here. And we know from Josephus that there was an explosion of would-be messiahs in the years just prior to the destruction of the temple. Some of them doing outlandish, crazy things. But people were aware of us an impending judgment, and so these messiahs were saying, I got the answer to this. And they'd lead people, one guy led a thousand or so people out into the desert, Claiming that God was going to show them a sign. And well, God didn't show up, but the Romans did, and they all got slaughtered. 
so there's a lot of craziness going on around this, this, this time. He, then he says, parents will be delivering up their children, and children will be delivering over their parents. We know that happened under the persecution of Nero. Uh, he says that the, the temple will be desecrated, and he talks about the need. If you're in Judea, you're going to have to flee fast. Don't even go back into your house. Just make a run for it. Uh, because these things are going to happen swiftly. And then he says, one will be taken and one will be left behind. And if you understand it in that context, you know what it's talking about. All of this took place in the years prior to 70 AD. It's not about the end of the world. It's about what's going to happen at the end of the, the Jewish era. Now, there are two things of, of the temple Judaism, two things in this passage that lead people to think it's about the end of the world. And here again, we have to pay close attention to the idioms of speech, all right? The first thing is this. One of the things Jesus says is that before the end, which in this context means before the destruction of the temple, uh, the gospel must be preached to all nations. And so I've, in my early years, heard many, many sermons about how every people group has to be reached before the Lord will come back. And they're trying to motivate people to go out and become missionaries. But see, I think we're taking things more literally than they would have intended it. Look at Acts 2. This is Luke. He's reporting on the day of Pentecost. And he says, he says uh, Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Well, every nation under heaven, China, Russia, how about America? They didn't even know about America yet. No, it, it wasn't literal. He lists 16 countries, but 16 is only a fraction of all the nations under heaven. What's going on here? And then Paul says this in Colossians 1. He says, this is the gospel that you have heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Really? This is, this is before 65 AD and the gospel hasn't even made it out of the Roman Empire yet. What's going on? And not only have every, he says, every human is hurt, every creature, every bird, every cat, every elephant, every orangutan, every aardvark, uh, you, you name it, that's heard the gospel. What's going on here? Well, we have to remember that the, the Jews and all, all Mediterranean people groups you make extensive use of hyperbole. It's a way of putting an emphasis on something. And I can show you a dozen other passages where it said that the gospel was, has already been preached to all the nations. But it can't possibly mean that literally. What's going on is that when they say all nations or the whole earth, you find this a lot in the New and the Old Testament, it's just a hyperbolic way of saying outside of Jerusalem and everywhere. And the Jews thought of the world divided between Jews and non-Jews. So to say it's preached throughout the whole world means, number one, it's gone beyond, beyond the uh, Jewish culture, and it's all over the place. And we know that by 70 AD, Christianity had spread to some of the outer regions of the Roman Empire, and it included a number of different people groups. It was already becoming, you know, a, a, an integrated thing. And so Jesus is simply saying that before the temple is destroyed, the gospel is going to be breaking out of Judaism and it's going to be preached all over the place. That's all the passage means. And then he says this. Here's the second thing that leads people to think that he's talking about the end of the world. He says, but in those days following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. So some of you are asking, how could that possibly be a 70 AD thing? Explain that, Pastor Boyd. Did they see the sun go dark? Did they see the moon go dark? Did they see the, fall, the stars fall from the sky? Are the heavenly bodies shaking? Did they see the Son of Man coming in glory and power on the clouds? Absolutely. But not if you're taking it literally. No, it's... It, uh, but see, it has to be something that's fulfilled in 70 AD because it's three verses after this where Jesus says, this generation will not pass away until all these things have been fulfilled, and this is part of the all things. So it has to be a first century thing. But see, it's not a literal first century thing, but no one would have thought it was literal. 
Um, I've already talked about how the writing on the clouds. Everywhere else in the Bible where it's mentioned, it's not meant literally. There's no reason to think it's meant literally here. It just means the Son of Man is going to come in power and glory, uh, bringing judgment to those who need to be judged and redemption to those who need to be redeemed. And the same is true about the sun, the moon being darkened, and the stars falling from the sky, and, and the heavenly bodies being shaken. Folks, you find that phraseology a couple dozen times throughout the Old Testament. It's applied to almost every judgment of a major city. The stars are going to fall from the sky. The sky, the sky will be rolled back as a scroll. Uh, you know, the foundations of the earth will be shaken. But people didn't see that when the judgment took place. It, no, it's just that... Um, here's, here's an example. Isaiah 34. Here's the judgment on Edom, the country of Egypt. Edom. And it says, All the stars in the sky will be dissolved, and the heavens rolled up like a scroll. All the starry hosts will fall, like withered leaves from the vine, like shriveled figs from the fig tree. And Edom was judged and it was destroyed. Did anyone see this stuff happen? No. It's just the way of, their way of saying the world as you knew it will come to an end. In fact, if you take it literally, like people actually saw this, it doesn't make any sense. He says the stars will be dissolved. But then he turns around and says the stars are going to fall to the ground like figs. Which is it? If they're dissolved, they can't still be around like figs. And by the way, how do stars fall to the ground like figs? Because they're giant balls of gas billions of miles away. Uh, they're, they're not fig-like stuff. But see, this isn't meant to be literal stuff. This is a way of saying, raining cats and dogs. Raining cats and dogs. The world, as you know, it's going to come to an end. Or look at this, this one in Joel 29. I could give you dozens and dozens of examples of this. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood. All right, when when, when is that going to happen? Well, Peter, on the day of Pentecost, the spirit is poured out, and Peter says, folks, this is that which was prophesied by the prophet Joel. My spirit will be poured out on all flesh. And he quotes this passage. Now, did they see billows of smoke and fire and blood and wonders in heaven and earth and the moon turning to blood? No. But no one would have thought that was going to actually happen. Peter is simply saying, this is a world-changing event. Uh, everything's changed now. The Spirit has come. So the, the, the era of the law and working on our own effort is done. Now God's going to write his law in our hearts. This is, just, this is a game-changer. It's a way of saying this is a game-changer. And this is how you express it in, in their culture. And so Jesus is here, I believe, referring to the destruction of the temple, which is as big as the day of Pentecost and any other destruction of a city in the past. This is an ultimate game changer, and so this is how you express it. Now, it is possible that when Jesus talks about uh, the coming of the Son of Man and the uh, sky being dark and whatever, he could also be referring to his coming at the end. Because right? we, we know he is coming again, and it's going to be in power and glory and all that. So there could be a dual reference here. We find that a lot in the Bible, where prophets speak, give a prophecy, and it has an immediate application right in the near future, but it also has a, a future application. So this could very well refer to both, but the important point for us to get, folks, is that all of the signs stuff does not apply to us. All of that was fulfilled in the, in the, in the first century, and it can't apply to us, which is why, folks, I encourage us. Here's the thing. Jesus, we know Jesus is coming back. Our groom will return for his bride. He's not going to abandon us. But we have no idea when, we have no idea how, we have no idea what that will look like, and there are no signs to look for. Uh, the one thing we need to know is that we don't know anything. <laughs> uh, and so we need to always be ready, and always be uh, prepared, and be a bride who's making ourselves ready. And so I encourage us to stay miles away from all of that sign stuff that's out there. It is, at best, 
And there's books and books and books and books and books on this. I know it. Every year. But it is at best a waste of your time. At worst, it's dabbling in divination. Because you're trying to divine something that the Lord has already told us we don't know. And this is out there all over the place. I'll end with this. I've been asked several times over the last couple of weeks about the four, the four blood moons. Have you heard about the four blood moons? Yeah, it's the latest craze out there. Uh, John Hagee's book, Four Blood Moons. This has been the number one selling Christian book for the last several months, as I understand it. It was number one on Amazon. I don't know if it still is, which kills me. This sells millions of copies. How come my books don't? This doesn't make any sense. <laughs> but this is out there all over the place. I wasn't aware of it. And it pained me to do it, but I actually researched this thing. I just want to give an illustration of this, all right? Here's the theory in a nutshell. Uh, it turns out that in 2014 and 2015, we will have each spring and each fall a blood moon. A blood moon is a lunar eclipse. And that's when the, 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 uh, uh, the moon begins to look red. So they call it a blood moon. So we'll have four blood moons in a row, all right? That's called a tetrad. NASA calls that a tetrad. That's a fairly rare event. John Hagee, using the research of this other guy, Mike something, Blitz or something like that, uh, uh, he, he argues there's a correlation in history. Whenever there's a tetrad, uh, that something significant happens to Israel. He doesn't say whenever, he says about half the time. Uh, there's something significant happens with Israel. All right, uh, and, and so these are warnings to the Israel's a nation because in his theology, God's still working through Israel and still centered to God's plan. So here are the three best ones he gives. The, the really the three that they highlight. Uh, it, there's a tetrad in 1493 and 94. Oh, that corresponds to the Spanish Inquisition when Jews were killed and kicked out of Spain. And then there's the tetrad in, in 1949 and 50, and that corresponds, they argue, to the, uh, Israel becoming an independent nation. And then uh, there's a tetrad in 1967 and 68. And that corresponds, they argue, to the Six Days War with Egypt that, that, that Israel won. So in 2014 and 15, folks, we can expect something big. It's going to be huge. Who knows what? It's going to be world-changing. They speculate that, that Israel is going to invade uh, Iran uh, because they're developing nuclear weapons, and that's going to set up a whole crisis in the Middle East. Something big is going to happen. And so this has got everyone talking and buying books. Now, it may happen that Israel will invade uh, Iran uh, because of nuclear stuff. That's, that, that seems kind of plausible. But, folks, it has nothing to do with blood moons if it happens. Think about this. There's hundreds of tetrads that have happened. It's rare, but hundreds of times that's happened uh, throughout history. The vast majority of them correspond to absolutely nothing. So if three happened to correspond to something, that'd be about what you'd expect by chance, especially if you're looking for something to correspond to it. You know, uh, you, 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 that, that, that seems pretty, nothing supernatural about that. Tetras are going to happen no matter what. I mean, there's clockwork here. You can predict when they're going to happen for the next billion years if you want to take the time. Most of them correspond to nothing. But what about those three? They correspond to nothing. <laughs> you guys, if you just look at, look at this, this is, oh, uh, Okay, so these are the best. These are the big ones. 1493 and 94 Tetrad. Well, folks, the Spanish Inquisition started in 1478. Your warning is 15 years too late. Uh, if the 14, uh, 1949 and 1950 Tetrad. Well, folks, Israel became an independent nation in, four, in 1948. Two years too late. The, the Six Day War. That's the 1967-68. That Tetrad. Well, that comes ten months after the Jewish War had ended, and a year and ten months. The, the first first blood moon comes ten months after the war ended. The last one, uh, the fourth one, a year and ten months. God must have real bad timing or something, uh, or poor communication skills. But folks, there's nothing going on here. People believe this stuff. They buy. They go to conferences, fill out auditoriums with this stuff. It's amazing. I don't get it. I do not get it. 
And since when are Christians supposed to be dabbling in astrology? I thought that was forbidden. Huh? And here are reading the, the, the moons. Ooh, the moons are happening here. And he finds all these references to blood moons throughout the Bible. Yeah, you find blood moons, but, but there they say the blood will be turned to uh, the moon be turned to blood. And whenever you find a blood moon in the Bible, you also will find right next to it, sun being going dark, uh, earthquakes, famines, stars falling from the sky, heavenly bodies being shaken, a bunch of other stuff. But he just ignores that and focuses on the blood moon. <clears throat> and here's the real kicker. Even if true, so what? So what? It was supposed it was all true. Who gives a rip? What, what are we supposed to do? Uh, worry? Just, you know... See, if it's, if it's foretold by the stars, there's nothing you can do about it. Okay, now we know that it's going to be a crisis. What difference? This accomplishes nothing except making some authors fairly wealthy. That's, if everything else, it's just a waste of time. Reading this stuff, conferences, folks, it's just nonsense. Caca, mucky, <laughs> stay away from it. Folks, what, what matters? The only thing that's important is here and now. Look at the end will take care of itself. Our, our, our groom knows when to come back. He's got it all under control. Trust him and leave it at that. We got stuff to do. We got stuff to do. Really. Now. Folks, this is the time where the bride makes herself ready. This is our betrothal period. We're going to be getting ourselves ready. So we need to take sanctification seriously, serving the world seriously, feeding people seriously, giving them shelter seriously, spreading the gospel seriously. Right here, right now, it's the only thing that's real. Don't look at the future. Look at the present. The future will take care of itself. And besides, you're going to be dead pretty soon, and so am I. So who cares about the end of the world? Let's use our little short life to mean something. All right? Right here, right now. That's what matters. Where you stand? All right. Well, God bless John Hagee. Someone sent him this message. Uh, but <laughs> l- Lord, Lord bless him. I just don't want any of you following that. <laughs> All right. As I close, can I ask the prayer teams to come up here? If you have any need whatsoever that you uh, could use prayer for, I encourage you to come up here and pray with these folks. Um, and uh, as, I, as we leave here, I just want to pray that, Lord, help us to be a people who know the importance of the present who are invested fully in the present, who live passionately as though this was our last day, because it might be. Lord, protect us from distractions, things that waste our time and that that uh, come to no good end. And help us to keep our eyes fixed on you and fixed on the work that lies before us right here, right now, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. God bless you guys. Go out, live in the present. <laughs>